Greetings, and welcome to episode 26 of Ending the Sexual Dark Age. I'm J.V. Altharos, and as promised, I have broken the show's interview cherry. So, guys, as I mentioned last week, uh, we have a military man with us who's been in the service for quite a number of years. He's going to give us the benefit of his point of view regarding the attitude of military personnel towards gays in the military, as well as a few other topics. And I think this is going to be a good time, because as most of you know, we don't get any of this information unless it comes through the Pentagon public relations machine. So, uh, this, in my opinion, this will be the first time I'm getting the straight story. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Uh, hey, thank you, JV, for inviting me. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to share my perspective and uh, the perspective of some of the folks that I uh, serve with. Well, on behalf of the listeners, I want to thank you for taking the time and giving us the no BS point of view. I'm going to, I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in the military, just a little bit about your background so the listeners know where you're coming from? Sure. I'm going to uh, refer to myself as Kyle throughout this interview. And uh, what I want the listeners to understand is I'm going to, I'm going to do uh, exactly what you mentioned. I'm going to try to give you a very candid, clear perspective, one person's perspective. I'm not speaking for the institution as a whole, but uh, kind of what I've seen from my experience and the experiences of the folks that I come in contact with and have come in contact with, you know, uh, since news like this uh, has taken center stage and even before that. And to kind of give your uh, listeners a, a, a point of reference, I'm not a newbie. I'm not a guy who's just jumped into this. I've been in the military serving our country for uh, longer than current enlistees who've just joined the military have been alive. So I've been around for a while. And hopefully that'll provide them with a uh, comprehensive perspective on how long I've been around and the changes I've seen in the military. So that would make you very much a veteran. I take it you've spent your share of time in war zones with that kind of career. I have. Fortunately, unfortunately, uh, I've seen the good, bad, and ugly of many different situations, just not what we're talking about today. <laughs> it's not an exclusive uh, experience that I've had. As I was mentioning a minute ago, most of the info civilians get about how the military views anything is, comes from the Pentagon. Uh, can you give us just a general straight story about the attitude within the modern military towards sex and especially towards gays in the military? Sure. What I'd like to do is just take a second to make sure I, I don't want to operate under any assumptions. I want to make sure that the listeners understand that the military is basically, you know, you and me. We're a microcosm of the American society. Anything that you see out on the street is what we've got in the military, good, bad, or ugly. So we've got all walks of life in the military. So we do have those folks who are open and receptive to a lot of different things. And we also have those folks that are, um, aren't so accepting, I guess I should say. One of the unique things about the military is during economic good times, you'll see a different makeup of the military, different um, dynamic amongst the personnel than you will in less healthy economic times. Not saying that your recruits in good times are poor recruits, because they're not. There's some great people serving in all branches of the military at all times throughout our history. But what we find is, you know, the level of education, um, educational background and study is actually higher during economic downtimes. And it makes sense when the economy is poor, people need jobs and people seek out, you know, the stability of the military. Sure. So unfortunately for the country as a whole, the economy sucks. We all get that. For the military, though, culturally, it's a 
positive thing because what we have now is the last few years of recruiting people who may have had other options a few years ago because of the wealth of talent that they have, education levels, et cetera, that are now coming into the military. And I'm talking about both on the officer side and the enlisted side. Um, you know, we've got a lot of young recruits coming in as enlisted people that are coming in with four-year degrees. So having put that into context, if there was a time to have a, a cultural change and an address of certain topics about cultural change, now would be the time to do it because we've got folks that are younger, more educated, uh, critical thinkers who can, you know, help formulate opinion and change culture within something as vast as the military. People might be surprised. I mean, we've got everything in the military. We've got the folks that are open to just about anything. We do know, and I know we'll get to this later, but we do know that we've got homosexual people in the military and have been serving since the dawn of age in our military. You know, we've got lifestyle people in the military. Anybody who wants to uh, jump out on one of their favorite um, swinger websites, for example, and they happen to have a military installation near them, if they know what they're looking for, they'll be surprised how many military folks are out there in the lifestyle. So we're not all just crusty old white dudes who don't like anybody. It's a, you know, it's a whole makeup out there. Is it fair to say that the crusty old white dudes are making a lot of the rules? Well, you're, you're right. You're exactly right. They are. When you get to the uh, five-sided building up there in Washington, D.C., and you get to see who's sitting at those tables making those rules, the demographic narrows drastically from what you, you see in the field. Well, and I think, uh, as you were saying, the military being a microcosm of society, I think there's a lot of that going on uh, pretty much everywhere, especially a, a, a good analog would be at the corporate level. Right. Uh, most of the guys who are running corporations are essentially crusty old white guys, or they're young white guys who are well on their way to being crusty old white guys. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of diversity. It doesn't seem to be a lot of diversity at the top or a whole lot of tolerance at the top in a lot of aspects of life. And it's the same for us. As much as uh, maybe the military and the civilian world would like to think, the military is a, is a corporate institution. There are military militaristic attributes to it, but there's a lot of corporate characteristics as well. So people may be surprised who aren't familiar with the military, uh, just how corporate we really can be at times. So, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you said it's a pretty good time for uh, for a culture change within the military. Correct. Now, we have uh, we have discussed before that civilians, because we're not immersed in military culture, and I have probably had a little bit more contact with military culture than the average person who doesn't have any military in the family and doesn't do business with the military. So, the military culture is it's a culture that supports people who run towards gunfire. So it's it's a little bit of a different mentality than I think we see in the civilian world in places other than law enforcement. And I know from our discussions before that you have said that the military as a whole is keeping pace with society with openness towards gay rights and positive attitudes towards gays, but some of that breaks down on the front lines because of some of the unique conditions on the front lines. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Let me caveat it with the response was saying that to an extent, I believe that there are people, younger people that are more accepting, but we can't forget that uh, there are folks out there that aren't as accepting, whether it's in garrison and any, and I apologize to your listeners, but anytime I say in garrison, I'm talking about 
your soldier at the local installation in Georgia, uh, not the soldier sitting in the middle of Afghanistan or Iraq right now. Okay. You've got two subsets at least, and then you also have a context within those subsets. You've got those folks sitting in garrison back, uh, for example, in Georgia, and you take that same guy out or same gal out and you put her or him in the middle of Afghanistan, and that mindset changes. Trust me, there are folks that are even back in garrison, sitting back in the States, who uh, aren't accepting of this at the least. They may talk the talk that's being sold, selling, you know, selling the company line, if you will, when they need to, but you get them behind closed doors and it's a point of contention for a lot of folks. I can't even give you a guess at what, but it's a significant number that we don't hear a lot about a lot. And maybe if we can, at some point, if you want to talk about why, I can give you some background on that. Um, no, I, actually, that's, that's a great thing to talk about right now. So please continue. Well, it, it kind of tails off of what we were talking about, you know, of the military construct. We talk about the attitudes and whatnot of this policy change. What I really, and the re, you know, kind of the reason I reached out to you when you had your uh, episode 24 was because I don't believe, and I base this off of personal communications I have with folks that span the spectrum. I, I like to talk. I like to debate. So I'll, on a personal note, I'll talk to a lot of folks with a lot of varying attitudes from the guy who says, there's no way in hell I'm ever served with something like this to I've got family members that are either homosexual or have family members themselves who are or close friends that are. And I personally also socialize with homosexuals. And before anybody judges me, it's gay guys that I hang out with, too. It's, you know, it's. Uh, it's not lesbians. So it's not just lipstick lesbians? It's not just lipstick lesbians. Because we, we've all got fantasies of the barracks. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Those women's barracks, man, I bet you that'd be a fun place to sneak into. Well, I imagine they would. We do too. Us guys in the service have the same things, same fantasies you do. Trust me. We don't have any more access to it than you do. So. <laughs> yeah, is, is that one of those items that's pretty much end of the world time if you get caught? Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> So when, when this policy was announced, we, you know, we all took it with bated breath and thought, okay, what's going to happen? Surely this isn't going to happen um, because there's just way too many common sense reasons why you wouldn't want that for your military. Things kind of got fast rolled. It's way above our level. So we just take what's been, what's given to us. Uh, hopefully what my objective is, is for people to understand kind of in context how we become a social experiment for America. Um, your military members don't have a lot of choice. You know, we're kind of told which way we're going to go and we're going to go that way, regardless of the impact on our lives, our moral vectors, our personal code. And I hope your listeners kind of try to hear everything that I say from that point. What would they do in situation X? What do they believe? Think about something they believe passionately about or maybe dispassionately and they just have a passing interest. But we don't have a choice. Civilians can always walk away from something, for the most part. I don't want to be too concrete in my statements. But, you know, can walk away from something they completely disagree with, abhor, whatever. Mili your military folks cannot do that. If something impacts their lives to, a, to their moral code, to the, the core of who they are as a person, they have to deal with it because that's, that's our marching orders, if you will. 
Well, one of the reasons when we were first talking about this that I really wanted to get you on the show is that uh, I don't know how many servicemen I would have to go through to find a guy with your level of experience who is straight. So he, I, so I'm sure you hear all kinds of things from the straight guys that the gay guys don't. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, who is straight and also a supporter of gay rights, I think you're, you're kind of uniquely qualified to talk about this to this audience because I think that's a perspective they'd find interesting. And, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me about our initial conversations um, was that you, as a supporter of gay rights, still have big issues because of your personal experiences and the psychology of being on the front lines um, that I think would be difficult for me or anyone who hasn't lived that to explain to civilians, you know, how you can be in support of gay rights and still have uh, fundamental issues with having gays on the front lines and how that impacts frontline troops. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, most definitely. Me and my uh, one of my family members get into this discussion quite often because she, even though she's more intimately familiar with me than you are, she still <laughs> she still doesn't understand how I can uh, see both sides and still maintain a certain perspective. So what I want to do is I, I want to answer that. I want to give your listeners what what I'm thinking about. I don't care who I serve with. I believe there's a value in all humans. All people have bring something that we can value that we can use. Military is no different, you know, and in a perfect world, I would love the day to come where I could open up the roles, be completely non-exclusive and accept everybody. Because again, any, you know, it goes back to, to when minorities weren't allowed to serve. It goes back to when women weren't allowed to serve and then only were allowed to serve in certain capacities. Anytime you break down those walls and, and introduce those people and those perspectives and different viewpoints, you get a richer product. You get a more talented team. Who wouldn't want that? Um, and it's the same thing in a perfect world. Some of the folks that I know that are homosexuals, that, you know, the gay guys that I know, they're extremely talented, extremely intelligent, hardworking. And if I was building a team, yeah, I'd want them on my team. That's the perfect world. That's right back here in the States where we go to work from eight to five, whatever our duty day is, and then we go home at night. Whenever your your military deploys downrange, when we go to Afghanistan, when we go to Iraq, and we're out there in the field, on the front lines, away from the world, it's a completely different uh, ball game. And I don't know how much folks have taken into consideration. Your, your military, they'll deploy from anywhere from six months to a year and a half. And some of it is very austere living. Some of it are huge compounds with lots of fun things to do, you know, to pass the idle time. But realize if you're completely unfamiliar with the military, try to think of back in high school. Think of your high school and, you know, the thousand students that you had from ninth grade to 12th grade, all those teachers. And think about that environment and that you can never leave that environment. You never went home at night. You never got to get away from it on the weekends. That's where you live for a year and a half at a time seeing those same people all day, every day. That's kind of what it's like for us when we deploy. We can't. Man, you know, honestly, that's going to chill down my spine because <laughs> high school is not a picnic for, for many people. I think a year and a half of straight high school with straight no opportunity to walk out the front door is kind of fucking terrifying on its own. It is. It, it, it is. And we don't have an election. We can't get out of that. And we, we volunteer to serve in that. You know, we, we know we have a duty. We want to do that duty to do it. But there, 
that context, if your listeners can keep it in that context, think about that. You can't ever escape, even if it's for six months. Six months is a long time. You know, you've seen those folks 24-7. Now, when your military deploys, I wish you could say it's these huge bungalows with lots of private space, but it's not. Depending on where they are, it could range anywhere. The best case scenario is you're living in a small room, not an apartment, a small room with one other individual of the same gender. Typically, those things are 100 square feet total. Everything you and him have is in that 100 square foot of living space for the next six months to a year and a half of your life. And, and that ranges from that small room all the way up to, you know, tents, housing, 8, 10, 12, 16 guys. It's always the same gender. So you're living in that space. You're showering in small trailers. I don't even know how, that, how small they are, but so typically they're like eight stalls in an open bay kind of area. Absolutely no privacy in those things either. And you don't have any power or any avenue to change any of that. So you're living with somebody. And if we put it in this context of this discussion, you deploy, uh, you're in Afghanistan for the next year and a half of your life, and you find out or you know already that your roommate is a homosexual male, you're a male, and you've got a year and a half of living with this guy in all kinds of situations, waking up in the morning in your skivvies, he's there, you know, taking this shower. In, in the open bay, he's there, and you've got no reprieve. You've got nothing you can do to, to get away from that if that bothers you. And the lodging accommodations, per the message traffic for the policy that we're seeing, is saying that accommodations based on your sexual orientation are prohibited. So I can't go to my boss's boss's boss and say, hey, Johnny is gay and I can't live with him or I, I, I refuse to or I don't want to because I find it harassing or upsetting or unnerving. Can you please move me? Uh, or the military can't say, OK, men live in this sector, women live in this sector and homosexual men live here and homosexual females live there. It's strictly prohibited from doing that. Well, I think that the housing issue, I think, kind of underlines the complexity of the issue. Uh, some of the things that you were saying, for example, you know, in the military, when you have to take your regular piss test, whenever they call you up for it, somebody's got to watch the stream. Right. There's going to be a guy watching your dick. And generally, a straight guy is probably going to prefer that the guy who's watching his dick has a zero or very minimal chance of getting excited about it. Right. By the same token, you know, if you, if you were to house all the gay troops in one place and pink, put pink epaulets on them, uh, it, now you're kind of, you're almost, uh, just increasing the problem. Cause now instead of a, a regular housing situation where there might be a gay guy or two, where you have this environment where someone you, where you don't necessarily know if the people who are watching you get dressed every morning are sexually attracted to you. Um, you put all the gay soldiers in one place. Now you've got an environment where you're damn sure <laughs> that everybody watching you get dressed in the morning might be attracted to you. Right. So it's like there's from a civilian point of view, when you start looking at the complexities, it's almost like there is no good solution other than housing every soldier alone, which just isn't practical. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's not. And even, I, I'm sure there's going to be somebody out there that says, well, why don't they just switch? Why don't they, don't, why don't they just swap? I wish it was that easy. We go, when we go to war, we go with flexibility to accommodate and house a surge of personnel we'll just say the shit goes bad and and we've got to get people in there to you know get the fight back to our side 
we've got the capacity to do that, but it's not something you would want. You're, uh, think about that 100 square foot that I just told you about shared with that two, the two guys, you and your roommate. When we go to surge, that 100 square foot now houses four people, four men on bunk beds. Think about it. That's a 10 by 10 space. Four grown men with all their equipment in that 10 by 10 space of living. There is no flexibility when it comes to, uh, to housing and honoring those requests, even if commanders wanted to, even if they were sympathetic and understanding, they just don't have to. That capability to say, okay, well, you move over here because over here has somebody else living in it and that person's going to be affected. And who's going to move in, you know, with that gay guy in, in evil quotation marks um, right. in, the, in the bay that you just vacated? It's, it's a conundrum. It's very difficult. It's, the showering situation is extremely difficult. It's just one more example of the situation that we're put in and the fact that these showers, these shower bays, these shower trailers are extremely small, absolutely devoid of any privacy whatsoever. Even for that person who says they could tolerate it, in the mindset that they could tolerate it. And then, you know, after, after six months, 18 months of doing this, you know, one has to question how easily that's done because it doesn't afford you that escape. And, and really it, it shifts things. There's, there's this thing about ignorance is bliss. Yeah, right now, we know that homosexuals serve. We know it. It's out there. Nobody denies it. The blessing, if you will, is the fact that nobody knows who anybody is. So all the leverage stays with the heterosexual people. Okay. Heterosexual people have all the power in that we can play ignorant to it and we can avoid it. And if, God forbid, because I don't want to think of my fellow service men and women being like this, but if the situation comes up where Somebody makes a takes a glance, makes a gesture, whatever, to someone of the same gender, and that person returns with something nasty or derogatory or whatever. The homosexual person can't say anything right before before this policy will fully go into effect. The heter the homosexual person can't say anything because it's still a don't ask, don't tell situation. So the guy who feels threatened or harassed or just doesn't like some other dude looking at his junk can say, you know what? Stop looking at me. I'm going to beat the hell out of you. I'm going to make you swallow your teeth. You know, all these nice, wonderful messages that he could send to him. So he still feels, even in this situation, even knowing this has come down the pipe, he still knows that he has that kind of leverage. Once this policy goes into full effect, we, we already know that lodging based on sexual orientation is prohibited. The word on the street is, is that lodging and shower latrines and those types of facilities will all be at the commander's discretion. So that'll get pushed onto the local level to that commander, probably at the installation in Iraq or in Afghanistan, for him to decide whether or not he or she is going to build a separate unit to house these this other category of people or whether they're going to save the manpower and the money to other more urgent needs. Anybody with some common sense and you know some operations management is going to know you don't have money and manpower just falling you know falling out of trees. It's the same thing in the deployed setting. Folks hit the ground running and they're building crap or tearing down crap constantly. A commander, it, it, it'll be a blessed commander who can sit there and say, well, yeah, I've got a bunch of engineers that can go 
build me this new facility so we can make sure we avoid these types of situations. Um, it, it's just not realistic. Right. And just to be clear, these are the, these are the same engineers that are building you runways and helipads exactly. and the other mission critical things that you've got to have to succeed. Exactly. That's exactly what they're doing. So when this policy goes into effect, what's going to happen is you're going to have this noise on the ground. You're going to have commanders at the local level that can change it, but who are probably realistically powerless to truly change it. And then you've got, you know, way up the ladder, you've got policymakers who agreed to this, who are, I mean, essentially going to be unaffected by the policy change. So it's going to come down to Joe Blow from Nebraska. No offense to any of your listeners who are from Nebraska, you know, who is adamant. Yeah. So both of you guys, no getting pissed. Right, right. No getting pissed. You're going to force me into this situation. I'm, I'm going to have to shower right next to a gay dude. He may be looking over at me, checking out my junk. I don't, and I'm not speaking for myself here. I'm speaking for Joe Blow out in the middle of Nebraska who doesn't support gay rights. And he's going to possibly, and maybe rightfully so, I can, you know, I can't, I can only put myself in his, his situation. He could get pissed about it. And what's he going to say? He's got nothing he can say anymore because the new policy, the new training that's coming out basically is not a policy at all. Basically what it says is kind of what I imagine, because I'm not that old, kind of what we imagine we went through when we allowed minorities to serve or back when women were allowed to serve in the military and then expanding the role in the first Gulf War for them to actually deploy to theater. You know, the new policy per se is one of zero tolerance for, um, you know, harassment, full acceptance on everybody's part. Basically, the policy is this. Everybody's going to love each other starting, you know, from launch date number one. And there's going to be no harassment. There's no gonna, not going to be any discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. Are the leaders, are the guys in the Pentagon taking any steps to address cultural issues? Or, uh, or are they, well, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Um, are they taking any steps to address cultural issues and to try and make a smooth transition or are they just, you know, handing down the new commandments? Um, and also make this a little more complicated for you. Um, I'm old enough to remember when don't ask, don't tell was first enacted. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of people saw it as a cop out back then from a civilian's point of view, especially a civilian who believes in gay rights. Um, you know, it's easy to see anything other than totally equal as a cop-out. And it's, as I was saying earlier, it's kind of difficult to, to really visualize uh, the man on the ground's point of view. But can you tell us a little bit about what the new policy is and, you know, the biggest ways it's different from don't ask, don't tell. And uh, if you were enlisted back then, uh, you know, a little bit about what the military did beforehand. So especially some of our younger listeners, we've got a lot of younger listeners who probably don't remember don't ask, don't tell coming into play. Way, way, way back in the day, it was uh, it was kind of ignorance is bliss again. It was almost an atmosphere of everybody is, you know, white, married to a woman, has two and a half kids and a dog at home. We That's who we were. And I, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but it was. But anything else you just don't talk about. Right, in the military. It just, I mean, it just you didn't talk about gays existing in the military. It, it just wasn't even a thought. Um, those were the Cold War days. That's when, uh, you know, there was still a Berlin Wall and, and, you know, things like that. And you just didn't talk about it, uh, you know, and then the policy came change came out and it was, you know, first it was 
from what I remember of it, and maybe just my perspective, but it was received as almost, you know, funny, haha. Is it really necessary? Um, well, good that squash that, so now we don't have to worry about that kind of policy. You know, it was almost as if, and maybe because it, I was younger at the time, holy crap, there's, there are gays that serve? Well, isn't that funny? Well, now they can't say anything anyways. Whew, everybody wipes a brow and we move on with business. Well, and that was kind of my response at the time. I mean, it just it just seemed like deflection. Our right. policy is we're not going to have a policy, and that doesn't seem like a great way to run a military. Right. And and what's pretty what I believe is kind of critical is you you can't. I don't think you can ever look at something this significant and take it out of anything except the context that it is in, and then compare it. I hope folks remember that back then we would sit there with a few bases overseas and pretty plush conditions. I mean, God, we were living in Europe and Asia. And when I say Asia, I mean Japan and Korea and nice places like that, not Southwest Asia or Southeast Asia, you know, and we had our families with us and we went home at night after work. That was the context then, you know, we didn't have these six month deployments, these year and a half long deployments to the middle of the worst place in the world. And if you don't believe me, please take a trip to Afghanistan or Iraq. And I'm sure your mind will be changed where you, you know, you're essentially a prisoner for those six to 18 months. And I don't mean that to be derogatory. I just mean every aspect of your life is controlled when you're over there. You have to remember there's status of forces agreements over there that basically dictate how we as individuals act. And then there's internal policies dependent on the service. They literally go all the way down to how you dress. Some services only allow your folks to either wear a uniform or wear their physical training gear off duty. There is no individuality whatsoever in this type of context. You know, since since you mentioned that, totally unrelated point. I have heard, I don't know if it's true or not, is it true that you guys aren't allowed to have bacon over there? <laughs> it depends on where you're where you're at. There's a lot Okay, cuz I, you know, I saw that on TV on 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 some kind of a special report and I just thought that was fucking uncivilized. I mean, if you're an American, you got a right to bacon in my well, mind. I, hey, I agree, but I would also argue that if I'm an adult and I'm volunteering for this, I should also have a right to uh, pull out a, uh, you know, Michelob after a long 14 hour day with no breaks, no lunch hour. And I should also be able to pop up, pop open a Maxim and, you know, just enjoy what God has given us on this earth. But uh, in certain areas over there, Maxim is considered pornography. Your military members can't go over there with a muscle and fitness magazine because that's considered pornography. If we do, we get handcuffed. I, when I, one of the times I deployed, I actually saw a military member checking through a certain country in that theater getting arrested because he had a boatload of Maxim magazines and some muscle and fitness. And he probably had a penthouse or two in there. But the guy just got there after a 30-hour flight. He's going to serve your country and your freedoms. And he's put, being put in handcuffs by authorities because uh, his his uh gear that he was carrying with him uh, so yeah that's uh that's one of the things i was hoping to do here is uh is kind of round out our listeners understanding of what you guys are going through all together there as you were saying and i've heard some of the same things uh many places no alcohol nothing that shows any kind of skin at all i mean you you, you couldn't have cosmopolitan mm-hmm. over there because there are underwear ads in it And uh, do you think that deploying in that kind of environment makes this especially stressful when you have so little of what you're used to at home as opposed to 
back when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was enacted, which at the time, and this is for point of clarity, we had been 20 years without an active theater conflict right. when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was first brought right. into being. Oh, I, most definitely think, I most definitely think it will. It's going to raise some interesting um, scenarios. A lot of your folks are deploying over there under something that's called general order number one. A lot of people misinterpret that to think that means no alcohol, no sex. What it really means is no cohabitation. A male and a female, a female if I'm sitting in my tent, I can't have a, a, a girlfriend or a girl that's over there with me, or a woman, I should say, sorry, I apologize, a woman that's over there, come visit me in my tent. Even if we were going to sit around and play Xbox all night, she cannot come into my tent. Now, there are some services that allow that, but they have to leave at a certain time unless they're married. What happens with that order when this policy is fully implemented? Because it specifically says across that gender line. Now, if you're homosexual, what does that mean to you? Do you get to go see, if you're female, do you get to go see your girlfriend in her private area, even if there's a time limit on it? You know, and what happens to those folks around that are going, hey, wait a second, whoa, time out. Uh, this is not cool with me. How come they get to do that because they're the same gender, but I don't get to do that? So so essentially, this is opening up a new kinds of rules law. Oh yeah, most basically. definitely. And, and the thing is, the thing that's scary to a lot of us is it's shoved down our throat. This was we knew when the administration was coming in that this was a priority. But between be, begging for a study to be conducted, which by the way, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about the poll that was conducted and why it's a farce for a lot of military folks. I would definitely like to talk about that poll because that was something I kind of latched onto. Um, just, I'm an analytical guy. I've got an analytical mind. Uh, when some of the congressional hearings were going on, I caught some of those. Um, and some people were saying, well, you know, we polled, was it 4,000 Marines? Right. I know it was a very small sample group. And I was just wondering how you could possibly take the temperature of something as vast and complex as the U.S. military by asking 4,000 people questions. And I'm glad you did that. Unfortunately, my opinion is I don't know if a lot of people who are sympathetic to this, who are supporters of this, did that. A lot of folks that I've talked to who are sympathetic and don't understand where I'm coming from took that argument and said, well, look it, they gave you guys a chance to have your say and overwhelmingly you as a military supporter. And if you look no further than what's being published, then yeah, that's true. Overwhelmingly, the military supports it. But I hope folks take a second, take a couple minutes to kind of delve deeper into what that poll is. You already hit on it that it's not even a snapshot. To call it a snapshot would be to over embellish what really happened. They took, I mean, there's roughly one and a half million people serving in the, in the, in the branches of the military. And I'm taking a guess off of my knowledge of how many folks roughly serve in each of the branches. I'm not including your active guard, reserve, all those folks in that number. So to even take 20 or 30,000 folks out of 1.5 million, are you really getting the snapshot? Are you, getting, are you getting the pulse of the people? Well, I think one thing that makes it challenging for civilians is that uh, I talk all the time on the show about the sexual dark age, and I know you listen to the right. show. Love the show. We all, we all want to be done with the sexual dark age. And I think to a certain extent, we hear something like that, like, well, the military did a poll and 80% of uh, poll respondents said, uh, you know, so they had absolutely no, no problem, no issues. And I, as I, as a citizen that wants to have a, yes, I want to have a military that 
that respects everyone equally. Uh, I want to have every American citizen have the same rights in every walk of life. And that's what it really comes down to from my right. perspective. And uh, I think America as a whole, we love our military. You know, this is not, people talk about this being a second Vietnam. This is not the second Vietnam because in now you see a, uh, you see a platoon returning home, walking through the airport, people clap. Right. You know, this is, this is not the same thing. And I think we, as a society, have a higher opinion of our military than we have, I won't say ever because I haven't been alive that long, but then than we have for a long time. We want to believe that the acceptance is as widespread as that poll says it was, but I think a thinking person who lives in America every day, uh, you know, almost has to conclude that it would be surprising I, what, no matter how much acceptance we push and how much equality we want, it would be surprising if those poll results reflected the military because I doubt they represent America as a whole. I don't think we have 80% approval. I think that would be great. Um, I wish we did, but I don't think we do. Right. And I don't, I don't think we do either. And I think not only was the, um, the net cast way too narrow to capture a, a true sight picture but I, th I think the structure of the poll itself was poor um from the very 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 few people that have had anything to say on it um and there's a couple east coast newspapers if people want to read more on it that delve into the counterpoint on how the polls were structured what they asked and uh what capability they gave folks to add in scenarios or add in specific concerns or feedback that they had. Um, anybody who has ever done a survey or a poll knows that you can make a poll or a survey say anything you want it to say. It's all about how you ask the questions. If you caught a thousand military people on the street and you said, hey, you, would you have any problem serving with a gay guy? And you're asking a thousand guys, most likely 900 of those thousand guys are going to go, hell, I could care less. No, I won't. Okay, we're going to jot that down. Nine out of 10 military guys don't have a problem serving with gay guys. But that's not what they really needed to capture. And there was some noise created about the combat troops, those folks on the front line. But unfortunately, uh, how much did anybody see of that? Well, absolutely. And actually, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm glad we're doing this. The unnerving thing about it is... That in the fact of how quickly everything's being pushed through. I mean, if we pull back and we look at the macro perspective on this, we're talking about a cultural change, a significant cultural change. Whether we're ready for it or not, it's still a cultural change that's being shoved down our throats, so to speak. Because if for nothing else, one, everybody has to accept it. There is no deviation from the course. And two, we're going to do this overnight. And, and, for civilians out there who aren't following this, you know, day to day or even once a week, they might not think that it feels like that. But once this hit the street and once the poll was published that, you know, some certain folks had asked to wait for, I mean, we've got guidance letters that are falling out of the sky. We've got training that's already ongoing and the training deadlines to train folks are just it's something that I haven't seen in my long service. I mean, we're talking about the end of next month for some training programs to be to be done for every serviceman every essentially single serviceman 100% within essentially what's going to be two months a two month period how are you going to train 1.5 million people effectively 
within a two month period and then have, and we're talking about acceptance. We're not talking about, you know, put left foot first, right foot next, left foot again. Folks need to change who they are as people and their belief systems because they have to be able to operate. They have to be functional and they have to be professional military people. And oh, by the way, you're going to do this for 1.5 million people in the next two months. If there's a guy that's riding the fence and goes, man, this might be a good idea. This might not be a good idea. What does that do to that person when you're telling him you will accept this and you will accept it now? Here, go get some training on how to be a good accepting person and tolerate everything. And oh, by the way, as soon as you get the training, you are now responsible for any and all of your actions. Within the military structure, say you've got a guy who is generally homophobic. And I'm going to say phobic because I use the term gay hate for a very good reason. But it doesn't cover everyone who has issues with gays. Some people, there is some genuine fear going on, even though it's driven by ignorance. It's all driven by ignorance. It's fear that hanging around with a gay guy is going to make you gay. Um, Is there... Is there any recourse, is there any facility within the military or any provision for guys who are in that position and they're trying to be accepting, but they just can't quite get themselves to do it? Are those guys out in the cold too, or are there counselors they can talk to? You know, what are, what are the options inside the military? The military does a wonderful job of providing counseling. Um, and I put an asterisk next to that because there's a cultural uh, stigma to counseling, um, seeking any counsel in the military if it's not a chaplain. A chaplain uh, is the only person that will have full confidentiality. Uh, okay. Beyond that, you're, I mean, you do have some very wonderful, very talented psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers who are out there doing great jobs for the country. But unfortunately, a lot of the population won't seek that out uh, because of the stigma that's attached. And, you know, that could be a whole whole discussion in itself. Then you've got the aspect of going to the chaplain for an issue like this to deal with it. Maybe, right. Probably not the most helpful guy on the base. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not. And then on top of that, <laughs> you've got to accept it. And we're going to uphold you to that standard because this is now the, the new standard. Now, the uh, one last thing I want to touch on, I know that there various militaries around the world have different policies and some of them don't feel there's a need for a policy. Some of them have strict policies. Is there anything that you have seen in your interactions with foreign militaries um, that you think we could learn from their policies, or do you think it's too much of a cultural issue and we have to just, it may take us another 40 years, but do you think we just got to stumble through it on our own, or can we learn from others? Well, I think you hit on it with the, with the cultural thing. The militaries that we typically interact with are of European background, therefore many of them are far more advanced than we are, generally speaking, far more advanced than we are when it comes to accepting of acceptance of different orientations, different lifestyles, et cetera, et cetera. And can we learn anything from them is difficult to answer because of a logistical basis. And I know it kind of so- sounds like a cop out, but yes, we do have NATO partners out there with us. Yes, some of them serve very long times, but a person would be hard challenged to find Another military, especially for some of our troops in certain uh, branches of service and certain career fields that deploy as much as our folks do um, and for as long as our folks do. So even if we were on the same starting point as they were culturally and we were ready for that change as, as a general population, 
just logistically, I don't know how successful um, it would be. And, and they have different accommodations depending on who they are and where they are. They have different types of accommodations. And I don't want to make it sound like our government doesn't support us because I believe they do well. But when you deploy the numbers that we deploy versus, you know, the 5,000 from Australia, financially, it's not as much of a burden for Australia to give each person, and I'm just using them as an example, each person private living quarters and maybe a private shower or, you know, walled off showers or whatever it may be. When you deploy like we deploy and the numbers that we deploy, it's just not, it's not fiscally possible to do that. And logistically, it's not possible. I don't think a lot of these countries would give up the land that would require uh, the support. So, you know, bad answer back at you. I I don't see how it could be from all those constraints, even if we were ready to do it. It's, you know, for me, for me, it's apples and oranges. A couple of final questions here for you. Based on your many years of service and the changes that you've seen the military culture go through, do you think this is something we're still going to be struggling with, if not in society, in the military in 20, 30, 40 years? Or, and or is there anything that, uh, that you guys come up when you're shooting the shit around the firing range? Have there been good ideas that aren't making it far enough up the chain of command to get acted on? Or is this something that is just such a bag of snakes that we do not have a good answer on it yet? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, what I think is going to happen is uh, two or three years from now with world crises and, and horrible world events like what's going on in Japan and our failing economy and all this stuff, the regular civilian, this is going to become a non-issue relatively quickly for them. The reason I say that is because this has been strategically put down to an operational level. So when you push something, it's like the manager out there in your in whatever corporation you work for. You got the big hot show. You got his departments. You've got his managers. And then you've got that dude that's in the mail room, way way in the back with the broom. And his boss is a guy that's sorting the mail. the The guy who's sorting the mail, the boss of that broom sweeper. He's the one who's got all the responsibility on his shoulders. He's going to be shouldering everything, all the decisions, good, bad, fair, unfair, whatever. And then that broom pusher is going to be the guy that's going to have to deal with those consequences of those decisions. That manager, that department head, and that big CEO sitting up at the top, they're not going to ever see it. So if they don't see it, they ain't going to talk about it. Do you think that our base commanders and our unit commanders, the guys who are in control of the installations, do you think they're going to end up getting scapegoated when things inevitably go wrong? Or do you think they're going to have some support from above? It seems like a deviation from what we all understand to be a command structure for the Pentagon to put such a huge responsibility in the hands of effectively the mayor. Right. And it just seems like another opportunity for deflection. This just seems like don't ask, don't tell version two. Right. And is that something you'd agree with or is that a, that an incorrect assessment? I agree with that. I see it. I see it being, well, I see it being pushed down to the mayor, if you will. And I see that mayor having to worry about everything that's going on in the city. Are the buses running on schedule? Are we bringing good businesses to the downtown revitalization pro- project, et cetera, et cetera. Your installation commanders in the deployed setting their concern is, depending on their mission, you know, getting those battalions out, getting those patrols out, getting those airplanes off the ground, and making sure that 
all 2,000 people on that base go home to their wives and their husbands and their moms and dads alive and not in a box. That's what they're going to be worried about. So they're going to push it down to, you know, levels below them, which are still commanders to a certain extent, uh, you know, depending on how deep they go. They're going to push it down to them. And because it's a, a policy of acceptance and we all accept and we will zero tolerance for discrimination, et cetera, all that, that's going to be go down to that unit commander to deal with. And that unit commander is going to have to deal with every single one of these situations um, that arises in his or her own way. And just, you know, as a point of reference, that's for, for civilians who are listening, that's we're talking about dozens of levels of responsibility away from the decision makers in the policy uh, or in the Pentagon. Excuse me. Is there a real chance of an every man for himself kind of a policy blooming out of this? Well, you know, they'll be whole, they'll be held to the standards. The commanders will be held to standards. Your your unit as a unit commander, you need to uphold these standards and the standard is all accepting zero discrimination okay. all that. So that's what that's what their vector is. So their decisions are going to have to be based off of what do I need to do to make sure that I'm in compliance with what our direction is. All right. Now we've, uh, I know you're out of time here. So before we wrap it up from a man in the military, who's been behind the front lines, is there anything else you wish civilians had a better understanding of? I, what, what I would like to do is one, thank you for the opportunity uh, to let, let me have my say. I really appreciate it. I shot you that email and I was just hoping to kind of share a little bit with you. And when you asked me to do this, it was, I, I couldn't say no, because uh, I think it's an excellent opportunity one of the last things I want to do is just throw out some what ifs to everybody and just have them think about it. And please keep in mind, you know, that neighbor that, you know, joined the Marines or that friend of yours that's currently serving in the army and think about what if this happens to them, you know, what if those commanders don't respect lodging requests to have them bunk with somebody for a year and a half that they feel intimidated by or sexually harassed by? Cause guess what folks that can happen. Um, what happens if there's sexual misconduct in a country where homosexual activity is illegal? What happens to those Americans? Because currently those status of forces agreements, as far as the policy is right now, don't cover that stuff. Are we handing over Americans to other countries because a male had anal sex with another male? What happens to your soldier who went to war three times in the last five years but comes home and refuses to take a piss test because in the military world, that observer has to directly see the stream of urine leaving the body. So they have to see your body and all that, all its intimacy. And what if that guy knows that other guy is gay or that gal knows that other girl is gay and they refuse to pee. That's refusal to follow a direct order. That's court martial material right there. And you know what happens in, in those ambiguous harassment situations in the shower Somebody looks at somebody or somebody perceives that somebody's looking at somebody in a situation and something escalates from there. Think about before you too quickly say that the military has to accept these things, put yourselves in those types of positions, put a dear friend in that type of position and say what, you know, think about what you would want for them and, and how unfair possibly it could be for somebody who is maybe 18 years old, you know, in my old eyes, still a kid, still a lot to figure out about themselves, put them in that situation while they're having to worry about bombs going off and and being shot at and, you know, kind of understand what they're going through. So when you maybe see something in the future that may be negative towards acceptance of this policy, 
think about it in that context of why it may be negative. Military is open. Many of us are open-minded and accepting, and we realize the value of homosexuals as people, as human beings, and what they can do for our team. But we also see that side of being in that no-win situation. And unfortunately, I don't predict, but I, because we'll never hear about it. It'll be pushed down so low, we'll never hear about it. But I have a feeling that a lot of folks are going to go through a lot of bad times uh, because of this decision. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Kyle. This has been a great opportunity. I personally appreciate the window inside the military um, and the, you know, the mindset of the modern soldier. Would you be interested, uh, depending on what kind of listener mail response we get on this, would you be interested in coming back on to talk about any questions that the audience might have? Oh, most definitely. All right. Well, that would be excellent. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you again sometime very soon. All right. Thank you, JV. And now I am swapping interviewees who were swinging. <laughs> Welcome, Shara. What did you think of the interview? Thank you. I thought it was great, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, we'll get a lot of call-ins about this, so and uh, that we'll have him back to answer some questions. Were there any questions that you wish I would have asked? I have to think about that because I think that you asked a lot of great questions. Um, I'd like to see uh, some of the higher up have to deal with the situation themselves firsthand because I think maybe they might change their minds about interacting and and figuring out what's the best way to deal with it because it does bring up a whole lot of different and interesting scenarios. Yeah, but you're not going to have two generals (laughs) sharing a tent on the front lines. I mean, you could make a fucking sitcom out of that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe we got a show here. There's enough reality TV out there right now. I I think we could do that. We'll just have to rely on him for some, you know, one-on-one experience and start writing a, a reality show. Oh, yeah, I, I don't think <laughs> I have the mental overhead for that. I think I think I'm quite busy creatively. I think you are. <laughs> but, you know, instead of calling uh, what Charlie Sheen calls winning, we could think of something like, you know, I don't know. Oh, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned Charlie Sheen, although it's <laughs> it's totally, absolutely unrelated to the topic of the show. Um. This being my show, I can talk about whatever I want. And you this can. is definitely a topic that uh, is related to sex and sexuality. You know what bothers me most about the Charlie Sheen thing is that it's news. Charlie Sheen has been running around with a briefcase full of cocaine and a bunch of hookers and porn stars for about 20 years now. Every once in a while, he gets caught and he says, oh, I'm sorry, and whatever, it's sex addiction, it's drug addiction, blah, 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 blah. Charlie's got a briefcase of coke and an apartment full of hookers and porn stars. He's probably going to still have one (laughs) in 10 or 15 years. But it's a slow news cycle. Well, I think that um, part of the problem is that up until he brought up being compared to Hugh Hefner, then people didn't really care as much until he went off his medication. Oh, he's got nothing on Hef. Oh, Oh, come on. Did you see that episode? No, I did not see. You should have seen that one. I try not to follow it too closely. (laughs) Yes, nor do I, actually, but... The amount of coverage is what annoys me. Ironically, I'm giving it some coverage right now, but only to criticize the other coverage (laughs) and the volume of it. (laughs) And I think that we, though, have something here that we could do. You know, he became, what was it, Some like the first one to have like over a million followers on Twitter? 
Let's do that with you. Let's try to beat his Twitter count. Let's get everybody following you on Twitter. Well, that that would be lovely. I would love to have. I, currently, I'm at about 30 people following me, so I would certainly love to have a million. But let's uh, let's take realistic steps one at a time. I think I think that could be realistic. <laughs> we'll get Aaron, and we'll get Belinda, and we'll get Amanda out there singing your praises and say, "Come on, sign up to this guy on Twitter right away." We have to beat a million. <laughs> I think we could do I, I'm it. I'm going to put you in charge of that. Okay. Aaron, <laughs> that sounds like an excellent job for the slave. Aaron, Belinda, oh, and Heather, and all of them out there that listen to your show, that I'm just going to talk to them, and I'm going to say, come on, let's get it going. And, by the way, early happy birthday to you. It's Wednesday, and so I want to say happy birthday. Uh, you would have to say well, it's I would. my birthday. I am your, I'm your submissive, so I, it's my job to wish you a happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad you decided to exercise <laughs> that requirement on... Uh, on the air. You can and spank I, me later if you I want will. to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's deserving of a reward. Well. I'd, I'd spank you with something you don't like to be spanked with, but I don't think there is anything. Uh, yeah. Oh, darn it. I thought I was going to get away with this just once because of the interview that I wouldn't have the bell ringing. So. It's, it's so cute that you still have hope. <laughs> <laughs> There's always hope. You must have hope. <laughs> Anyway, so happy birthday and great interview, and uh, I'd like to thank him for taking the time out to uh, do the interview with you. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we may, at some time in the future, we're not going to inundate the listeners with military topics, but uh, he said he would be happy to come back to talk about straight sex in the military. Wow. And, you know, the difficulty for anyone to get laid on the front lines. <laughs> that we have to change. <laughs> But I'm going to send this out to all of my uh, military family and friends to hear the podcast and, you know. Well, good. Yeah. So thank you, both of you, and happy birthday. Thus, we bring episode 26 to a close. As always, please feel free to join the conversation by posting anonymously on sexualdarkage.com, emailing jvauthoros at gmail.com, or calling into the listener line at 517-376-3116. You can also find Shara and I on Facebook, Twitter, etc. through links on the website, and we always appreciate good ratings and reviews on iTunes. This time, when I tell you that Group Sex Basics is coming up next week, I'm telling the truth, and that kicks off a month or so of team sports and different ways to play them. Until then, this be me, J.V. Althaus, reminding you that sex is one of the greatest things in life, and there's always room for better.